Please take your Bibles and turn to 1 Timothy, the letter to 1 Timothy. First letter to Timothy. It's um, in the back of the New Testament. This is part one in the series. We'll be looking at the book of Timothy uh, this entire winter into the spring. Part one is entitled The Gospel to Fill the Whole. And my sources include Philip Graham Ryken's Reformed Expository Commentary on 1 Timothy, John R.W. Stott's The Message of 1 Timothy from The Bible Speaks Today, and Michael Bentley's Passing on the Truth, a commentary also on Timothy from the Wellwind Commentary Series. I hope you'll take an outline. I hope that you'll follow along in the scriptures as we look at this today. And so please stand with me for the reading of God's Holy Word. Hear the word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the command of God, our Savior, and of Christ Jesus, our hope, to Timothy, my true son in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace. I love those three. I use those in my, in my benediction. Grace is the only reason any of us can stand before the Lord. It's because of his undeserved kindness he's shown to us. Mercy is what we all need, certainly not what we deserve. And peace is the traditional greeting in Jewish homes and Jewish highways and byways, shalom. And so grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not, they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. We know that the law is good if one uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers or mothers, for murderers, for the sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine that conforms to the gospel Concerning the glory of the blessed God, which he entrusted to me. The grass withers, the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you so much for your grace. We thank you for your mercy and thank you for your peace, which is unlike anything that the world offers. I pray, Lord God, that today you will touch our hearts and open our hearts and teach us your truth that we might embrace it, that we might walk in it. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. On an episode of the podcast, Under the Skin with Russell Brand. Don't know if you know the English actor and comedian, but he explains on his podcast his fear of atheism. He says, my fear of atheism is that if there is nothing else, If this is all there is, the material, the mechanical, then why not individualism? Then why not materialism? Then why humanitarianism? 
Eat feels good, he says, because it's nice to be nice to people. But for me, without some sense of a deeper truth, for me, there's only hedonism. There's only indulgence. Well put. I don't know where Russell Brand stands in terms of the gospel, but honestly, he seems to have some insight into the fact that the something more this world longs for is there for the taking. But for some reason, we, we settle for trying to go our own way, which leaves us empty. Through the years, many theologians have spoken to the fact that there is this God-shaped hole inside of our hearts, a place in our hearts that only God can fill. In other words, if we try to put anything else in there... It won't fit, meaning it won't fill the need that we have inside our heart and our soul. This is not a new idea. In 398 A.D., St. Augustine of Hippo wrote the classic Confessions. And in Confessions, he said this, You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. In 1670, the French philosopher and theologian Blaise Pascal wrote these words. What else does this craving and this helplessness proclaim but that there was once in man a true happiness, of which all that now remains is the empty print and trace. This he tries in vain to fill with everything around him, seeking in things that are not there the help he cannot find in those that are. Though none can help Since this infinite abyss can only be filled with an infinite and immutable object, in other words, by God himself. This letter from Paul to Timothy was written from Macedonia to remind Timothy of those things which he had learned from Paul in their many visits through the years. And to hear from him the things that he taught during their many times of traveling together to remind him of those things. We're first introduced to Timothy in Acts chapter 16 on Paul's second missionary journey. Timothy had a Jewish mother named Eunice. We find that out in the second letter. His mother was a believer and he had a Greek father who was most likely not a believer. Timothy was also privileged to have a godly grandmother named Lois. And so Paul tells us that from infancy, Timothy had learned the Holy Scriptures. So let me just stop and say what a wonderful blessing it is for anyone to have a spiritual heritage. And at the same time, what a great pity it is that so few children are reared in such a way that they know and love and believe the Bible's teachings. I mean, it really is our goal to assist parents from the cradle up so that the children in this church grow up hearing the things of God, learning the catechisms and learning the truth of the scriptures from childhood so that they can grow up understanding the love of God for them. Well, what we can ascertain from from Timothy is that he was converted during Paul's first missionary journey. No doubt Paul was impressed with the sincerity and the enthusiasm of young Timothy because according to Acts 16.3, he wanted to take Timothy with him. And from the time of Paul's second missionary journey, Timothy became a constant companion of Paul and a great helper to him in furthering the gospel. Paul entrusted Timothy with keeping the church at Ephesus and those in the surrounding area free from heresy. And what is heresy? Heresy is a denial of revealed biblical truth. 
And so he wanted to keep them from heresy. Why did Paul have such confidence in Timothy? Paul tells us in the first part when he says, He was my true son in the faith. My true son in the faith. Timothy was a true son in the faith in several respects. I mean, he began his ministry under Paul's tutelage. He seemed like a son because he was relatively young. He was probably in his late 20s uh, when this letter was written. But Paul also considered Timothy like a son because of their close personal relationship. I mean, they traveled together to Thessalonica. They traveled together to Corinth. They traveled together to Jerusalem. Timothy stayed by Paul's side when he was imprisoned in Rome. They co-wrote six of the books of the New Testament with Paul serving as the main writer. Timothy was Paul's pastoral representative, delegated by Paul to lead the church that Paul had planted in Ephesus. And so the word Paul uses for son is the word technon, meaning dear child. And he expressed that same fatherly affection when he said in 1 Corinthians 4, For this reason I am sending to you Timothy, my son whom I love. And later when Paul was in prison, he wrote to the Philippians and said, I have no one else like him. I have no one else like him, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. So as a spiritual father, Paul writes to Timothy to remind him of certain essentials that he must guard in his spiritual life. And I want to share these with you officers this morning, as well as with all of you who are followers of Christ today. Three essentials, three lessons from our text. And the first is this. All of us as followers of Christ We need a sincere faith, a sincere faith. Second, Timothy, chapter five, chapter one, verse five says, I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. And I am persuaded now lives also in you. And verse five of our text in first Timothy says the goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Most often, not always, but most often, spirituality is not created in a vacuum. And what I mean by that is there's oftentimes, oftentimes some individual who points a person to faith in Jesus Christ, sparking spiritual interest and eventually conversion. You know, as I talked about Richard, I thought about the fact that when I moved here, his father's name was still in the bulletin as an elder emeritus. And so there's a spiritual legacy there that is a beautiful thing um, that I'm sure had a lot to do with spiritual, uh, richer spiritual interests as a youngster. Timothy was blessed to have a mother and a grandmother who loved Jesus. His father was not the primary influencer in his life. That's not altogether unusual. As you probably know, there are a lot of people, a lot more people who show up on Mother's Day than Father's Day and for good reason. The great church father that I mentioned earlier, St. Augustine, was also, like Timothy, strongly influenced by his mother. His mother's name was Monica. Monica prayed daily for her son's salvation, and before his conversion, he was a wild one. In his confessions that I mentioned earlier, Augustine testified to his mother's faithfulness when he wrote these words. My mother, your faithful servant, was weeping for me to you. Weeping more than mothers weep for the bodily death of their sons. For she, by that faith and spirit which she had from you, saw the death in which I lay, and you, Lord, heard her prayer. You heard her, and you did not despise her tears, which fell streaming and watered the ground beneath her eyes in every place where she prayed. Indeed, you heard her. 
So Paul says that Timothy had a sincere faith. In verse 3, Paul tells Timothy to command certain men not to teach false doctrines, and the emphasis is any longer. And why would he do that? Because in verse 6, he says some have wandered away from these and turned to meaningless talk. So let's talk about doctrine. What is doctrine? To many people, doctrine is, is boring. It's rigid. It's inflexible. The last person most people want to listen to is someone who wants to straighten out their theology. However, this is exactly what Paul tells Timothy to do as he is charged, that is commanded by Paul, to command the people of Ephesus not to teach false doctrines any longer. So, officers, let me ask you this. What were we studying the last few months in officer training? We were studying doctrine. You know, I did not work with the deacons on how to take up the offering or how to prepare communion. I did not work with the elders on how uh, to lead in terms of uh, pastoring people. But I worked with the elders and the deacons on what we believe. Our theology. You know, the, the Apostles' Creed that Bo said he's going to be teaching, and I'm going to be teaching with Bo, the, the children in confirmation, is a wonderful statement of belief that we repeat every Sunday. Philip Graham Ryken, one of my commentators, said this. He said, any doctrine which is different from the true doctrine is a false doctrine. There's only one right theology. Every other theology is wrong. So how do you know if you've embraced good, sound doctrine? But you remain in the faith. You don't abandon the faith. You don't walk away from the faith. And there are so many through the years of my life who have sadly walked away from the faith. I'm not talking about moving to another church. I'm talking about leaving the faith. It's heartbreaking. Paul mentions a couple of examples in the latter part of chapter 1. Hymenaeus and Alexander, who he handed over to Satan, he said, to be taught not to blaspheme. I, I don't want to go into what that really means today, but I mean, basically he'd given up on them and was giving them up. And so the Bible makes it clear that these men made a deliberate and conscious decision to repudiate the Christian faith. And the result was a shipwreck. They shipwrecked their faith. And so we need, all of us, a sincere faith. Second lesson, we need a clear conscience. A clear conscience. It was Mark Twain who once said, a clear conscience is a sure sign of a bad memory. And so Paul urges his spiritual son, Timothy, to hold on to faith. And a good conscience. And it follows that a good conscience or a clear conscience comes from living a godly life. And you have to keep short accounts. And that's why we do a confession of sin. You say, well, my sins have been forgiven past, present, and future, right? If I'm a believer in Jesus Christ, yes, they have. But you still sin. And we should keep close accounts. Short accounts. And make sure that we're always making sure that our conscience is clear. And let me quickly remind you, the reason Timothy could do this is because Christ was living inside of him. The reason Paul could speak of Timothy as his true child is because he was God's child. He was a true true child of the faith. And the result of that conversion was God gave him the desire to live in such a way as to please the Lord. Now, you cannot divorce your faith from your life. And a lot of people have tried to do that. Paul explains to the Galatians the purpose of the law. The purpose of the law in Galatians 3.24, he says the law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. In other words, you see the law, for example, the Ten Commandments. That's not all of the law, but that's a great part of it. Look at the Ten Commandments. How well have you done on the Ten Commandments? 
I'd say that all of us have broken all of them in one way or another, in the spirit of them or in the legal letter of them. And because of that, we're hopeless to try to obey the law. And that's why we need the gospel, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the kindness who forgives us in spite of our sin. But that doesn't mean we continue to live in that sin. So to have a clear conscience is to be brought by the convicting power of the Holy Spirit to a point where we realize that we have offended God's holy law and we see ourselves as we really are. And so when a person sins, if that person has a relationship with Christ and knows Jesus, his conscience is pricked. In other words, he feels terribly about what he or she has done. But if there's no sense of conscience in the act of or in the doing of evil, that tells you something. It tells you that either you don't know Jesus or worse, your conscience is seared. In Timothy, Paul speaks of people whose hearts are so hard that their consciences are seared as with a hot iron in chapter four, verse two. And you know how a conscience becomes that way? By avoiding exposure to the truth of Scripture. In Timothy, Paul tells the church, he calls the church God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of these truths. Paul says these two virtues, faith and a clear conscience, are tied together three times in his letter. And that's because they belong together. If a Christian loses his faith or loses his conscience then he or she is no longer living as a Christian. So how does this work? Well, false doctrine, bad theology can lead to wrong practices. But the opposite is also true. A bad conscience can lead also to bad doctrine. I mean, many leading modern day thinkers led private lives. Some of the thinkers of the last century, for example, they led private lives that were completely opposite of their philosophy. Uh, Karl Marx, Bertrand Russell, Jean-Paul Sartre uh, were simply attempts. Their philosophies were attempts to justify their own sinful behavior. And so as a believer, we're called not to always have the right answers, but to to live the right life. And so we need a sincere faith. We need a clear conscience. And finally, we need love from a pure heart, love from a pure heart. And isn't that what the gospel is all about? Is the love of God. When Christ comes into your life, he overtakes your life as Lord of your life. He gives you a new heart, a pure heart. Ezekiel talks about taking away your heart of stone and giving you a heart of flesh in Ezekiel 36. Love from a pure heart is what the gospel is all about. And it's the gospel that fills that hole that I talked about in the beginning. That hole in our hearts, that thing that's missing. What's missing is the love of Christ. And that's why John wrote, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. Several decades after Paul wrote this letter to Timothy, it seems the church at Ephesus had forgotten or ignored this command from Paul because we find that the Lord Jesus Christ himself calls them out and says one thing to the church at Ephesus. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. The seventh question that I asked you officers this morning was this. Have you been induced, as far as you know, your own heart to accept the office of deacon or ruling elder from a love of God, from a love of God and a sincere desire to promote his glory in the gospel of his son? And if there's any other motivation to being an officer. 
But your commitment to Jesus Christ and his church, you're going to be one miserable officer. A true son in the faith must have true love, which according to the scriptures flows naturally from a love for true doctrine. False doctrine does just the opposite. You see, liberal theology wants love without doctrine. It is willing to tolerate all kinds of evil, including doctrinal error. And at the same time, some Reformation churches are willing to go without love as long as they maintain sound doctrine. Do you practice the doctrine of love as much as you love your doctrine? The better you understand God's grace in Christ, the more your life will overflow with a passion for the lost, a love for the church, and a compassion for those in need. And sadly, what we usually see in the church is truth without love or a love without truth. The motto of the EPC is, in essentials, in the major things, unity. In non-essentials, liberty, freedom. In all things, charity or love. Truth in love. And that brings us to our verse of the week, which is 1 Corinthians 13, verses 12 and 13. Please read it with me together in your bulletin. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part. Then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith Hope and love, but the greatest of these is love. Let's pray together. Father, thank you. Thank you for your gospel. Thank you for the love that you have for us as your people. A love that was so great that it drove you to send your only son, Jesus Christ, into the world to be born as a baby, to live a perfect life. And to die a sinner's death. And then to be buried. And on the third day, rise from the dead. And then ascend to the Father. To be at your right hand. And thank you, Lord Jesus, that you sent to us the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has shed abroad in our hearts the love of God. And so, Father, may it always be said of us at First Presbyterian that we love that we love like no one else. And Lord, while we love, may we love and stand on your truth and stand on truth and love. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for the new officers today who will be serving the next three years in this congregation. We pray your blessing over them and their wives and their children. We pray your mercy upon them, that you will bless them, Lord, and use them in our church. We pray, Father, that you will always put your hand upon this church and keep our eyes upon you. That we would never forsake our first love. And if so, that you would turn us back to you, Lord. That we might drink afresh and know that our life is only in Christ. Only in Jesus. Not in the things around this world, but in the things of God. We praise you, Father, and pray that for any who are here, not walk with Jesus in some time, that they would come back to you. For those who have never walked with you, Lord, that they would come to you today in grace and faith. To Christ alone. I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.